secrets destroy you from the inside out. Jennifer Roach. Jennifer Roach. Jennifer Roach. You live outside of the Latter-day Saint tradition. She was an ordained Anglican minister. I give up my ordination the day before my baptism. That's not nearly all of your background. The pastor who abused me, he is still employed to this day at a church that knows everything that happened and they don't care. I'm also a licensed mental health therapist. For abuse. So I don't come to this unaware of the pain that is in this subject for some people. How have we not stopped this yet? Mandated reporting is kind of the current darling of here is the thing that's going to fix it. And I'm so happy for that. Here's the problem. Stories get written in a way that doesn't really explain what's actually happening. The fascinating part for me is that some of the practices that our church has been doing for forever actually end up being really, really protective for kids. Give me an example. Oh, really? Don't let the abusers win. They do not get to win. They don't get to steal your faith. Don't let them. So what happened to me was terrible. It should have never happened. It was awful. It ruined my life in some ways. Hmm. But... My abuse happened um, in a freshman year through junior year of, of high school. The man who abused me, he and his wife moved away in the summer before my senior year. And I actually, for a while, sort of lived in this, like, fantasy world of, I'm just going to forget that that happened. Mm. I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen and move on with my life. And that worked for a little while. Um, I actually had a few kind of great months. Oh, it's working. And then my high school English class, we were reading Macbeth. And Macbeth is about a lot of things, but one of them is how secrets destroy you from the inside out. And I started to really feel the the weight of that. Shakespeare, like he just yeah. like gets right in there, man. So feeling the weight of having a secret like this is actually going to be bad for me. So I decided I needed to tell, but telling was still a process. Hmm. Um, there was a an adult working in the church who sort of was on to me a little bit in terms of like, something's up with this girl. Something is not quite right. Um, he was one of the pastors there and he would have little conversations with me. I gave him little tiny bits of information and waited to see if he was going to freak out or not. And he didn't. Hmm. And so I'd give him a little bit more, maybe in the next conversation. And it took know, six or eight conversations before I was willing to actually say the thing. Hmm. Um, he had to sort of follow his instinct of like, something isn't right here. I'm going to keep asking questions. Mm. Um, so over the course of these conversations, I disclosed to him. It's the late 80s. So okay. this is 1989. Okay. Mandatory reporting laws aren't actually in effect in California where I was living. Okay. Um, I... I actually waited until I was like really, really close to 18 to report um, because I felt like I would have a little bit more control over how it went. And it turned out I didn't get any control over how it went. Hmm. Um, they made a lot of decisions for me that I just didn't have I just didn't have enough knowledge about the world to even hmm. understand the implications of what was happening. Hmm. What they said to me was sort of like, don't let this destroy your life. It's time to move on. Hmm. Um you know, be be a be a good little girl and buck up and and just be okay. Hmm. And I tried. I I tried as just about as best as a person could try. Um, as a senior in high school, kind of directionless, 
had been through this trauma, didn't really have anybody that was helping and guiding and advising me. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just on my own to figure it out. Um, Eventually, I, I started reading books, started going to some classes to learn some things about what had happened, even put language on it. Mm. But at the time, I, did, I didn't, I barely knew how to talk about it. Graduated from high school, started college. Unmitigated disaster. It was, it was, I couldn't get myself, I lived across the street from the college and could oh. not get myself from bed to class. Wow. Right? Like, I was just so dysregulated. Mm. Um Spent a couple of semesters failing classes and this is a waste of time. This is a waste of money. Um, Mm. People at the church, some of some of my leaders at the church actually said like, well, maybe you're just not smart enough for college. Like it's not for everybody. Why don't you become a dental hygienist? Mm. Like stuff like that. In their minds, they were being helpful. Mm. Um, Like maybe this wasn't your thing. Yeah. What I Not not even remembering what happened. Yes. No thought of like, huh. Maybe this girl is struggling because of what she's been through. Um, Did you make the connection? I thought I was inept for not being able to get to class. I thought this was my fault that I'm not handling this better. Really? Oh, yeah. It Somehow everybody else had moved on. They hadn't been through what I had been through, but the conversation was over and I was expected to move on. And I was really struggling. The Mm. only thing I knew was to blame myself for that. So you kind of made the connection, but maybe not so much. Made the connection, that, but yeah. I thought I was just dealing with it poorly. Ah, uh, that is so sad. I spent most of my 20s just trying to get my feet back underneath me. I got I got married. Um, mm. We had some infertility, so I spent lots of years in my 20s trying to get pregnant. Like, really just tried to put my focus on that. Contacted them probably five or six times over the course of... Three decades almost. So you're still you're still trying to grapple with this, and then you get to the point where, uh, so where where does it kind of come to the point where you're like, okay, I'm really gonna face this, yeah, and get this out there. Um, I ended up deciding to do something I never in a million years thought I would do, and I thought, well, I in a million years I never thought I would talk to someone in the media, but maybe that is what makes sense right now. So you're like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna. Talk to somebody. What mm-hmm. did you do? So I went online to the newspaper of my hometown. I grew up in Modesto, California. Modesto B is the hometown paper. I went on and thought, I'm just going to start reading reading writers. Let's see who they have writing for them. Mm. See if there's anybody I feel like I trust. And I read for a couple hours. Really? This person and that person. And um, just didn't really feel connected to any any one of them. And then I read a story by the reporter who ended up writing about me. First paragraph in Boom. was, this is who you need to talk to. Mm. So we, I sent him an email just to say, hey, I've got a story to tell about this. Do you want to hear? And to my great surprise, he said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear your story. No, no promises what's going to happen, but sure, like tell me the story. So we started talking and he started asking questions and then... A week would go by trying to confirm some of the things I said, and and it got more and more serious until the point of, we're really going to write a story about this. Mm. Um, So January, no, February 25th, 2018, um, that story appears in the newspaper. I kind of thought that was the end of it. Like, How do you get to the point now where you're, 
where you are today. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're uh, you're now a therapist, mm-hmm. a trauma therapist, mm-hmm. and you were recently before that you were an Anglican mm-hmm. pastor, yeah, ordained deacon, yeah, and then. How did you and, and now we're at this podcast for members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. People are thinking, like, wait this a second, girl. what is what is going on? What, how did this happen? The main reporter that I was working with to write these stories, a number, a number of places had stories, but the main person I was working with, his name is Garth Stapley. Um, he's this like really, really careful, good, award-winning reporter at this paper, and I really, really trusted him. Mm. We worked on these stories in my way of thinking now as almost a precursor of I needed to trust him to have some religious conversations too. Really? Because here's how it happened was this lawsuit gets filed. The pastor of the church says, I'm going to give a sermon kind of in response to this lawsuit. Okay, wait a second. Hold up. The sermon was actually in response to the lawsuit. Yeah, that it was, you know, you want to hear what we have to say about it? Yeah, We're going to talk about it in this sermon. Um, I watched it online. This reporter was going to watch it online, and we were going to talk later in the week to compare details. And what the sermon was, was he preaches on Moses. Okay. And his, his whole point is basically like, hey, like Moses made mistakes. Moses murdered somebody. Moses, like hit the rock when he wasn't supposed to. Moses did some bad stuff, but he's still a great leader. Yeah. And it's just like today. Sometimes leaders do real bad things, but they can still be great leaders. Yeah. That, that was then, the sermon. And, then, and how's that fall for you? How's that, that was land? was terrible. I was so mad. You're like, oh. I took notes. I had all kinds of things that I wanted to say about this. So the reporter and I have a phone call to talk about it, and I am fired up. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so mad. He said this. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't know how long I went on for. And eventually I wear myself out on this. And he says, he says, I didn't, I didn't like it either, but I have different reasons. Mm. I'm like, really? But t- tell me, why, why didn't you like it? I thought I had covered all of the reasons to not like it. And he says, well, I have scriptures about Moses that you don't have. Like, what in the world are you talking <laughs> about? No, you don't. And he says, yeah, I do. Um, I knew he was a member of the church. I had no idea. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had additional scriptures about Moses. I honestly didn't know anything about the Book of Mormon then mm-hmm. either, so it's not like I was super educated in the first place. But he said this to me, and I was very, very curious. And so I'm like, you, you have to tell me what you're talking about. And he's at work. Newsroom style, yeah. all the low, yeah. all the low dividers, all the desks are together, yeah, all the yeah. reporters are sitting together. And he's like, I'm at work. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to talk about scripture with you while I'm at work. Okay, I'll, I'll be reasonable. Like, all right, that's fine. So we finish our phone call. I think I texted him immediately to <laughs> you like be like, curious. secret message that your coworkers <laughs> now don't have to hear. Like, what are you talking about? So he sent me a link to the church's website, to the Book of Moses. Hmm. And, and I, the Pearl of Great Price. And the Pearl of Great Price, which is actually the first restoration scriptures that I read. Most people mm-hmm. don't start there, but that's where I started. Was the creation? Is it, you know? Yeah. Wow. What was the addition? What was the addition? That he's like, there's some other things that I have. Or, or oh, he just, yeah, he's so just the, being a good missionary. Yeah. <laughs> so the Book of Moses um, fills in details that we yeah. don't have written about Moses in the Old Testament. Yeah. Fills in some of the details of how God is dealing with him. There's all... 
I know this now. I didn't know it then. But there's all kinds of temple themes in the yeah, Book of Moses. Yeah, yeah. The Old Testament doesn't have any of that stuff in it. Mm. So I read it. I didn't. I didn't actually really understand what I was reading. I just knew I was intrigued. Interesting. So I kept reading all the way through Pearl of Great Price. Um, and by the time I was done, I was interested enough that I I said, I think I should read the Book of Mormon, hmm. which I texted to the reporter, and he's super lucky. Yeah, I guess yeah. that would be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a pastor yeah. reading Pearl of Great Price. You see this... this uh, this sermon mm -hmm. that's almost in the uh, in response to this article that yeah. that was written about you, right? Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, coming out with all these you know all these different allegations, right? Mm -hmm. And you're upset about it. You meet this guy who's a, who's a member of the church. Mm -hmm. He shares Moses with you. Yeah. Then you read it, and you're intrigued. Yeah. As a pastor. As a pastor. What, yeah. So I have always been a very religiously weird. I was a religiously weird kid. I've been a religiously obsessed adult. Hmm. So my interest in reading that at first, to be completely honest, was just curiosity. Okay. What, 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 did, what do these people think they know about Moses that I don't know? Right. Yeah, it was yeah, almost yeah, that. Yeah, like, what yeah, are you yeah, talking yeah. about? Huh. Once I started reading the Book of Mormon, my feelings really started to change into, oh my goodness, this might be scripture. Hmm. I... I'm not ready to say that yet. Initially, I was calling it fan fiction. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I got to the point where I thought mm. this might this might be scripture. I, what were you reading? Um, oh, I was probably you in just, Second Nephi by then. Like, just I'd read the Bible a lot in my life. I love the Bible. I know exactly what it feels like to read scripture and have scripture speak to me. Yeah, I've been doing that yeah. since I was little. I I got in trouble as a child <laughs> for taking a flashlight underneath my covers at bedtime to, like, read the Old Testament. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I've been at this for a while. And here I am reading the Book of Moses or the Book of Mormon and having a spiritual experience with mm. it, which is not what I expected. So I kept reading. Um, the reporter, who had by then become a friend— kept saying, you know, there are people whose full-time job it is to talk to people about our church and about the Book of Mormon. Would you like me to, to hook you up with some of our missionaries? Absolutely not. I can't ever talk to your mission, missionaries. What are you, are you crazy? <laughs> um, and so he'd be like, oh, hey, you know, that's fine. Just keep reading. We'll just, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. Yeah, we went through that a couple of times. And then one day I was driving. Mm on my way to church um, and saw two missionary sisters walking on the road. Random. Saw their name tags, drove right past them. And mm. really as loud as anything, the spirit is saying to me, turn around your car and just go have a conversation with them. Mm. And so I did. Turned around my car. I parked. Um, but both of those girls are now friends. They told me later that I was sort of marching up to them with lots of purpose, and they thought I was coming to yell at them. But you had this spiritual experience where you're like, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to go. Yeah. And almost, did it like bother you not to do it? Uh, yeah, there's no way I could have not talked to them. Really? As soon as I saw them, as soon as I recognized this is what God is asking me to do, mm. there's no peace for me unless I do it. Mm. Right? Like, I know what that, I know what it yeah. feels like. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I talked to them. I was still nervous. I didn't give them my information. I didn't give them how to contact me. I took their card and said, I will be in touch. <laughs> right? I'll let you know. <laughs> right. But by the end of, but by the end of the day, I had emailed them and said, Hey, hmm. I'm the girl you met on the street. Like, could we set up a, a time to talk? Wow. Um, and so we did. We set something for the following week. I'd never even seen missionaries where I live. I was living in Seattle at the time. No, I'd never, we lived there for 25 years. I never saw missionaries. Mm. So I saw the girls. That, that was a Tuesday. On Friday, I'm at home. I was cooking dinner for my family. Um, I was kind of making an involved recipe and there's a knock on the door. And I'm like, oh, should I even go answer it? I thought, okay, fine, I'm gonna go answer it. And I opened the door and two elders are standing right there. Interesting. And I thought, how in the world? And what I said to them was, how did you find me? And they're like, we just knocked on the door. <laughs> <laughs> just random. We're just out meeting people, you know, whatever the missionaries say. Huh. And I'm like, I, I didn't tell those girls where I live. And by this point, they think I'm a crazy person. Yeah. They're like, what girl? <laughs> yeah. Like, I told them. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I go and I go and grab the card that they had given me and their names are on it. Um, sister so-and-so and sister so-and-so. It turns out I lived on the border of two uh, mission districts. The girls were in one or two. Uh, yeah. Two like they're whatever. Yes. Yeah. They're not even the same mission. They're mission presidents. Really? Right. So the girls, the girls are on one side and these elders that are actually assigned to the ward I would be attending are on the other. So they'd never heard of these girls. And I was like, what's, what's going on? Like, <laughs> how did they find me? This is some kind of trick. But I, but I told them like, hey, I'm halfway through the Book of Mormon. I have a meeting set up already to meet with these girls. We're going to start talking about it. And they became very interested. <laughs> so we had our first lesson, and it was me, the two sister missionaries, the two elders, and the reporter from California joined on, really? on, on Zoom or Skype or whatever we were using back then. And so the you know, six of us sat around and had a conversation, and I knew by the end of that conversation, I wanted to keep talking to them. Okay. I hadn't yet come to the point of, I'm going to take action on this. But and you're I'm, still a pastor at the time. Still, you're still preaching pre and everything. and doing all the stuff. Yeah. And, um, the church where I was at, where I was working, was meeting in the morning. The ward I was assigned to had an afternoon. They were meeting at like 1.30 in the afternoon. Hmm. So schedule-wise. Perfect. It worked out for me to actually to do both for a while. Which was a real long day, but I felt compelled. Hmm. Um, I met lots of members. It, this was back, this was the very end of three-hour church. Hmm. So the gospel principles class is still a thing. Yeah. Kind of it's intended for new people or for investigators or whatever. So that ended up just being the sweetest thing. Me and probably 20 people from my ward would would just sit in the class I was usually the only investigator, and they're like, "We want to, we want to know like what questions you have." And I was keeping a notebook mm. full mm. of questions. Yeah. So i i had I had hounded this reporter with questions. I sort of hounded the missionaries with questions. I met members. I started to hound them with questions, and the more and more stuff started to click into place. Mm. We use a lot of the same words in our church that other churches use to mean slightly different things. So I had okay. to relearn some vocabulary. I had to relearn. Like what? Um, 
It, well, apostasy. Okay. Right? So if I say the great apostasy, you know, all yeah. of your listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Apostasy is a concept in other churches, but it means a person who has deliberately decided they themselves are walk, it, walking away from their faith. It's a well, personal thing. Yeah. It could be that too, right? It could yeah. be that too. But the more that people mostly know the, the general, right? Right. So they're talking to me about the apostasy has happened. Uh, and I'm thinking... Right. I wonder who committed, how how did that, like, yeah, like none, yeah. none of that's clicking for me. Yeah, yeah. Even the idea of the restoration, I didn't fully understand the way even a primary child in our church would understand the power of the priesthood was sort of gone for a while. Mm, like, mm, it wasn't mm. super, that wasn't working, and that that had to be restored. <laughs> I would not have been able to articulate any of that. Mm. Today, I can look back and say, mm. oh, absolutely, I know church history well enough to Give no you lots of examples of how this has happened. Hmm. But it takes a while for it to sort of snap into focus for someone who's coming from a, hmm. a traditional Christian system. Okay. Um, so, so you I, have all these questions. Yeah, so questions. Everybody's working real hard to help me out. What was, <laughs> the, one that, what was the one that bothered you the most that you like really wanted to know? Yeah, on, honestly, the one that was the hardest for me was the idea of a prophet. Really? Think about the things that I had been through. Mm. Um, a, a man in church authority using his authority against me to be abusive. Mm. I go to more church authorities to try and get help for this. Mm. I got no help and got ignored and got told to be quiet. Mm. Um, that didn't work out real well for me. So the idea of a man who doesn't doesn't know me, who I will n- never meet— that he's sitting 800 miles away making decisions about my life. Mm. I was nervous. It That was probably the hardest. That was harder to get over than accepting the Book of Mormon as scripture. Really? That was easy. So go through that for me. Like you're you're thinking, a prophet, what are they talking yeah. about? A prophet, really? Like, so, like, like how did you wrestle with it? I, I'm sort of presenting this question mostly to the women, like mm. adult women members in my ward I had met. Yeah. Like, how do you... How do you grapple with this? How are you understanding that? And they would they would give the answers that you would think people would give. They just sort of gush about how much they love the prophet. Mm. And I'm like, I am not asking this question in a way that people are getting <laughs> what I am actually. At. So I tried lots uh, of ways uh. to, and all I got was, oh, we love the prophet. It's such a blessing to have a prophet on and on and on. And, oh, this is so weird. And when we went through that actually for about six weeks before one day the missionaries say to me, um, President Nelson is coming to Safeco Field in Seattle, um, mm. and he's gonna he's gonna speak, and there's gonna be other speakers, and there's gonna be some music, and we can get you tickets if you want to go. It, absolutely, I want to go. I want to go see this man who's now gonna run my life. Is sort of how I was <laughs> yeah, thinking of yeah, him. Yeah, um, And by then, I certainly had figured out it's not it's not really like that. Yeah. Um, but I went to. I went to the event. They had encouraged everybody to get there early. And so I sat with all kinds of people from my ward, as well as other people I didn't know. And most of them spent the time before the event started talking about, like, their prophet. Oh, yeah. The the one from when they were young or the one who had the biggest impact on them or whatever. And they just told story after story of how— Prophets had helped guide their lives in really positive ways. Hmm. And it did something in my brain that just Hmm. let that worry relax. So that even by the time the event started, 
like before President Nelson was, I think, even at the baseball field, I had calmed down significantly about it. And he was great. He mm, he he, mm. he was himself, right? He does yeah. all the things. It wasn't his performance as a speaker mm. that day that that wooed me at all. It was the testimony of all the people the who had been yeah. so positively impacted by him and his predecessors. It's yeah. really, it's just a really moving experience for me. Yeah. And that sort of just tucked, tucked that worry back into, it wasn't a loose string anymore. It was subtle, but it was, it was powerful enough for you to recognize that you could relax about it mm-hmm. and continue to move forward. Yeah. And here's yeah. an entire baseball field. 30,000 people, whatever, who who have come to see him. And they all roughly look like me, mm. right? We all live in Seattle. Most of Same them place. work in technology, right? Like, I know what their lives are like. I know them to be smart, reasonable people who also accepted the idea of a prophet. Interesting. Sometimes, sometimes I think investigators need more contact than they get with members because mm. the missionaries are fantastic. Like, I needed the missionaries, yeah. But I also needed full-grown adults. <laughs> well, that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's how it's supposed to be. Yes. Yeah. Which, it, it worked beautifully for me, and sometimes I worry, investigators don't always get that. That's true. <laughs> that's really true. So, you're in this experience where that question wasn't like somebody came to you and said, hey, here's this example. Mm-hmm. Here's this logical reason why. Yeah. It was like, it was almost like, like, you know, they say, line upon line, precept mm-hmm. upon precept. Here little, there little. One of the biggest concerns is gone. And then mm-hmm. what happens after there? Um, after that, I met with the missionaries again. And they said, you know, like it feels like we're at the point where we're at a fork in the road. Do you, do you want to get baptized? Is that what we're headed toward? Mm. And by then, this was September. Mm. So I'd been taking lessons since roughly May. So we'd been at it for a while. We had gone through the six basic missionary lessons enough times that I had them memorized, <laughs> right? Um, so I knew enough of the teaching where, like, that really was an appropriate push from them to say, like, like, are we are we doing this or aren't we? Mm. Um, and I, by that point, I was like, yeah, we're we're this is where we are headed. Um, the timing of that was the only thing that was really in play. I was married at the time. Mm-hmm. My husband was really, really worried about me, mm-hmm. not at all interested in the church, really actually rather suspicious of the church. So mm-hmm. he had said to me, I just want you to slow down. Mm-hmm. I want you to really just have an experience of like living with this for a while before mm-hmm. you turn our world upside down, basically. And mm. I said, that's re- that's a reasonable request from a husband, right? Mm. So we had said, like, let nobody's making any decisions until January 1st. And January 1st came, and I wanted to get baptized more than ever. Mm. So we started planning my baptism. January 26th was my baptism. And so you get baptized... But you're still a pastor. What is it? What, like, so, like yeah. you're a pastor. Like, how do you, yeah. what is that? What's that? So you're going to get, you're like, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go forward. And you're this, you're an ordained at the time deacon mm-hmm. in this, in this. Yeah. From the vast majority of people in a traditional Protestant church, they're just attending. There would literally be no process for them to have to 
go through in order to exit. Mm-hmm. They want to exit, mm-hmm. they get to exit. Like there's yeah, nothing yeah. that right? they get to go do whatever they want. Be- ordination is taken really seriously in the Anglican church. You you have to work very hard to get that. Mm. Um, and you're accepting a different level of accountability okay. for things. So I went through a process with the bishops and, and leaders who had been leading me um, of saying, this is what's happening with me. I intend on getting baptized. What do we need to do so that I'm free to go do that? Like, it's almost a, like, can you let me Bring out in. of this agreement that we made together about mm. ordination? I want to be released from this. And they were incredibly kind. They, mm. Were, they mm. were very thoughtful. They wanted me to make sure it was a very carefully thought out decision. Um, they were they were as kind and tender as a person could be in that scenario. And, and I was willing to listen to them, willing to think through things. And by the end, I still wanted to get baptized. Hmm. Well, so you get baptized. And um, what would you say, how would you describe that for yourself of what the trade-off was for you? Uh, well, how I how I have said it a lot of times is like my only regret is I didn't do this earlier. Yeah. Um, and that's true. It and it's also true that I I lost a lot of friends. Mm. I lost the respect of people that I respected. Mm. I mean, they think I've they think I've joined a cult. They yeah. think I'm crazy. They think I've been robbed of my logic in some way. Mm. Um it's a really confusing event for the people who also care about sexual abuse that happens in churches. They're like, you're running towards a church, mm. not away from one. Like, and you're running towards a church that has a lot of demands on members. This isn't yeah. a come three times a year and call it good church, right? Yeah. So that was difficult. Um, eventually, when I got baptized, my husband, bless his heart, mm. he said, I, I don't I don't agree with this. I don't like this. I'm mm. certainly not doing it, but I love you. I support you. We're going to figure out how to make this work. And it got harder and harder and harder and harder for him. Mm. Um, and I have a lot of compassion for that. If the roles were if the roles were flopped, I would be in the same position. But it got so hard. To the point where he wanted to get divorced. Really? And so I lost my marriage. Oh my goodness. Over it. Um, mm. This is still a better church than where I had been. Mm. It's still a better system for salvation. It's still a better way to know what God wants. Mm. It's still a better way to live. So yeah, it's cost me things to be here. You don't normally think of people losing their families to join a church where we love families. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I wouldn't have done it different. I still, I, it, knowing what I know now, I still would have got baptized. Really? Yeah. Really? That's really interesting and very powerful. It's been hard. I can imagine. Yeah, it's been rough. That's not how I thought hmm. my marriage was going to go. It's interesting that you said it this way. You would think you would run farther away from... Mm-hmm that type of situation. Yeah. And now you're running towards it. If you open up the news, you'd see, you would mm-hmm. almost think that the contrary would be the true truth about, you know, all these, you know, there's different allegations that people have mm-hmm. when it comes to um, any church, churches in general. Yep. Uh, and when it comes to um, abuse, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile that? Yeah. So let me, let me give you an example. 
that kind of summarizes a lot of it. The the man who abused me, the pastor who abused me, he is still employed to this day mm. at a church that knows everything that happened mm. and they don't care. In our church, Latter-day Saints, I don't want to say, oh, we've done everything perfectly forever because that's no. demonstrably not true. However, um, you get kicked out if you're an abuser. It's yeah. serious. It takes first presidency approval for you to be let back in yeah. and doesn't usually happen. Mm. Right. Once I put that together, my mind started spinning of something. Something is happening differently here in how the subject of abuse is being managed in any way at all. Um, I, I found out a friend, a relative of hers had been an abuser and he admitted to it. Um, there was a disciplinary council within two weeks and he was out. Mm, that's right. It doesn't. Yeah, it's pretty quick. Yeah. So, so now you're in, you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. of Latter-day Saints. You're now a practicing therapist, mm -hmm. um, specializing in mental health when it comes to trauma specifically. Mm -hmm. And recently you've done a lot of research in this area. Yeah. And I'm sure it, now that I know even more about mm -hmm. it, it makes a lot of sense why you've, you've studied yeah. a lot of these things. There's probably like six uh, frequently asked questions when it comes to mm -hmm. abuse. So how did that come to be that you were like, I'm going to make do this research? Where did that, where did mm -hmm. that start? So where my interest actually started was um, the question of should a bishop have a private interview with a teenager where the teenager is being asked about chastity? Do you keep the law of chastity? There's um, people who've been upset about that in recent years. There's people who say a middle-aged man and a teenager should never be alone in a room together mm. to, talking about the intimate details of this teenager. Like, this is entirely yeah, yeah. inappropriate in itself. And I thought, like, yeah, like, I, I, I see what they're saying there. And yet somehow, when I was a teenager, mm. if I would have had literally anyone mm. pull me into an office and say, like, hey, like, let's talk about how things are going with you, even if it would have been a, like a, a limited recommend interview of, do you keep the law of chastity? I would have fumbled on my words enough mm -hmm. for that person to be like, well, what is going on? Yeah. Being abused is not the same thing as breaking the law of chastity. Like, don't yeah, mishear yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you it would have been I, an opening yes. door. And so yeah. that was my first, my first introduction into this idea of there are some practices in our church that are really actually helpful that might reduce the amount of abuse compared to other places that I have been. And so that's what really started my research question. Okay. Um, it's really, really hard to measure what, how much abuse happens in what churches. Yeah. The, the Catholic situation is a little bit different because a lot of those records are public. They've been in the courts. That one's a little easier to figure out in the Protestant world it's almost impossible to get access to comparative data. Okay. It, the Baptist church down the street isn't publishing the number of youth that have been abused in their church. How are you ever going to find that out? <laughs> so I stumbled upon an idea, um, and it has to do with the Boy Scouts. Okay. So as everyone listening, I'm sure knows, church was involved in Boy Scouts for forever. Um, depending upon the decade, hovers around about 30% of the troops are Latter-day Saint troops. Okay. Right? Um, we know 
We know one view on how much abuse has happened in the Boy Scouts. So there's two different two different sets of data. One is the current cases that are coming forward. So they have this settlement fund and victims can be compensated from the settlement fund. The details of that are not known. They're not public. No one has access to them outside of them and their attorneys. Yeah. But there is a public set of data available. Um, the Boy Scouts kept extensive records for 80 years really? on leaders who had abused boys. Really? They call them they call them the ineligible volunteer files, but mm. no one called them that. They called them the P files, P for perversion. Really? <laughs> God bless them for keeping good files, because they did. Mm -hmm. um, the information that you can gather from those files is all available online. It's in a database that's owned by the LA Times. Anyone mm. can access it. Right now, you can go see it. You can go see it. You can Google P-Files LA Times. You'll find it. Mm. Um, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of files in there. You can click on a file. You can see sometimes it's just a report. Here's what this kid said and nothing else. Sometimes it's extensive court records that are mm. 300 pages long. And then there are lots and lots of things in between. What almost every single file has, though, mm. is either the leader has stated what their religion is or you can read through the file enough to tell what their religion is. They're, they're leading a Latter-day Saint Boy Scout troop. They've been called to this position by their bishop. Pretty mm. safe bet they're a Latter-day Saint, right? So I thought... This is fascinating. We know how we know the percentage. We know 30% are Boy Scout troops belonging to the church. We these are the cases abuse happened in. Are 30% of them LDS kids who got abused? Or or are 30% of the abusers LDS abusers? Hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna design myself a little research project on on how to answer the question of does more abuse happen in our church? Is it about the same? Or is it less than in other places? Because if you read the media today or almost any time someone is writing about this, yeah. it's couched in such a way that our church sounds like such a hotbed of abuse. You let your kids walk in the front door. The, mm. the abuse is going to start right there. Yeah, right? it is. So like, is, like, is this real or isn't it? Mm. So ran through all the data, called up a friend who's a PhD in statistics, just like double check my work. Because I want to make sure that what I think I'm seeing is what I'm actually seeing. I was expecting a number about 30%. Interesting. The number's 5%. 5% of the abusers in those thousands of files are Latter-day Saint men who are abusing kids. That's terrible. There's absolutely nothing good about that. Those stories are horrendous, and I've read every single one of them that I can. Mm. However, it's not 30%. Another way of saying that is it's 75% less abuse than you would expect just based on the numbers. Really? Just based on numbers and with 30% of the troops. Okay, let's see. The, you would expect 30% of the abuse to be there. It's not. Yeah. I see what you're saying 75% less than you would expect just based on statistically. Wow. Right? Hmm. So the perception is definitely less than what it seems, not justifying that it even exists in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's not what you're saying. I want to yeah. make sure that that's completely, yeah. absolutely clear. It happens. It's terrible. It's awful. We've messed it up at times. We've dealt with it poorly at times. We've victim shamed, made it harder on, like, all the things. And my heart really goes out to 
the the listener to this show or the reader of the newspaper who reads these things and says, oh my goodness, hmm. I didn't realize our church is so bad. I, I've loved our church, but now I can't really, can I really trust our leaders? Oh, is this really, is the church really actually true? Yeah. Like that's shaking people's faith. Of course it does. I think that anybody that's experienced that type of trauma, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of questions that they have. Yeah. Right? There's actually a survey that um, I just read it this week. It actually came out a year ago, but it compares the public's perception of the Catholic Church, Latter-day Saints, and Southern Baptists. All three are churches that have experienced abuse to one degree or another. Yeah. What is the average person who isn't necessarily a member of those churches or isn't necessarily educated on abuse? How do they understand these three churches? And the general public um, puts them all together. They're all evil. They're all the same. Um, One of the questions is, do you have confidence that this church would handle claims of abuse correctly? Mm. And 69% of them say, no, absolutely not. Mm. And it's understandable because— Stories get written in a way that doesn't doesn't really explain what's actually happening. Yeah. Sort of takes um, some paradigms that explain what's happening in other churches yeah. and not in ours. Yeah. They, I mean, but again, like you're saying, is this a is this, like you didn't say this, but like, is this a church problem or is this a just this is a problem? Yes. And I think that the question that many people have is, well, how do you handle it? Mm-hmm. How what are we doing to handle it? Yeah. Right. And so, um, I think that some of the some of the, what I've read in your research too, mm-hmm. like it comes up with this idea of like, okay, well, what do you do? Yeah. Right. Like, how can you know that you can trust it? Right. Yep. The background checks, the mandatory reporting, and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Are there any ones that you want to particularly uh, want to go into? You know, there's a lot of history here where, really, starting in the 70s, n- nobody was talking about abuse all that much in the 60s. Back then, it was a stranger's going to abduct a child and pull him into the bushes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And by the 70s, we're starting to recognize it's usually somebody the kid knows. And by the 80s, we're starting to recognize, like, there's other patterns that can be observed, and maybe we can start to do some things to help. So since, like, late 70s, early 80s, there has always been kind of a a savior idea among abuse advocates. If we could just get this, yeah. we would solve abuse. And you know what? I have that impulse, too. And I think every single person who cares about kids— that's the only question. What do we do? Yeah, that's no, really the big question. No one wants this to happen. How have we not stopped this yet? And it goes in trends of different policies that are supposed to be the thing mm. that's going to stop abuse. I'll, I'll talk about two of them, mandated reporting and background checks. Okay. Those are sort of the the current ones. If you, um, if you go online and read about abuse, you'll find a lot of people saying, Mandatory background checks. You should be doing background checks all the time. It's so simple. Why wouldn't you do this? Mm. Um, background checks are are not what people think that they are. People think it's some kind of magic oracle that's mm. going to look into the soul of this person and say, have they abused? But that's not what it is. It's a records check. Is there a record of this person having abused? Is mm. there is there a court file? Have they been in jail? That's what it's checking. So the background check is a checking of their record. Of the, uh, yeah. And what's on the what's on, what's on the record? I, well, most people, 
including abusers, there's nothing. There's nothing to check. If you don't have a background, there's nothing have, to check. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Huh. It, it, it gets double complicated because victims, historically especially, it's changed a little bit in the last five years, victims delay reporting or don't report at all. Mm. So if you don't report, how is that person ever going to have a record to check? So somebody could have used 20 kids. It is not very likely that even one in 20 is going to report. And sometimes they're so young. This is just yeah. so terrible to even think about this. Like I know. And so that yeah. childhood hmm. sexual abuse, it's almost guaranteed that someone can get away with it. And so I get the impulse. Let's check this guy's background. Let's see if anything has really happened here. Hmm. Sure, go ahead. But if there's not a record, you're not going to get a, a positive result. And you have no idea. Hmm. Is this person someone who's actually safe to be around kids? Or is this a person who is very well practiced at being around kids and abusing them and manipulating them into being quiet? You have no idea. I've been thinking about this too, like deception. If it's your, if you know what's happening, you're not being like, that's the whole point of deception is mm -hmm. right. You can't, and, and betrayal too. Like you can't be betrayed by somebody that you don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's the people that you trust or, and like you're saying in most of the research that they found mm -hmm. that it is people that you usually know. So it gets tricky. So just having a background check, you're saying that it's easy for it to be kind of miss, miss mm -hmm. undetected. The average age that a person first speaks about their own childhood abuse is 52. Are you serious? 52? That, that research, it comes from a group called Child USA. Here's how it, how it works. In childhood, we say abuse is detected way more than it's reported. Mm. So a child doesn't come up to you and say, I need to explain to you what Uncle John has been doing to me, right? Yeah. Child starts acting out. Child has um, marks on their body that don't make sense. Mm. Uh, some adult has to catch what is going on with this kid. Mm. Or the kid just says something weird. Yeah. And an adult follows up and asks some questions. Occasionally, a child will, Mom, I have to tell you what happened. But that's not the majority. Mm. So in childhood, childhood is the second greatest time in life that child that abuse will be detected um, once somebody's in their 20s, there's almost no reporting at all because people in their 20s do what I did. Just, I'm going to move on. I'm going to make my life work. I'm going to get on what's with the point? it. Yeah. What's nope. it going to do? What's it going to do? Nobody cares anyway. Gonna, well, what's it going to do? Like, the statute of limitations yeah. is gone. Yes. What's the point of even bringing it up? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So in most states, up until five years ago, every state had a statute of limitations that was anywhere from one, maybe seven years. A real generous one was... If you're 26 years old, you can report any abuse that has ever happened. But if you're over 26, it's too late. Hmm. Um, so most victims have not reported, not talked about it till they're they're ready in their 50s. No one in their 20s, tiny bit in your 30s, tiny bit more in your 40s. By the time people are in their 50s, th hmm. they, they start talking about it. Oh my gosh. But in most states, even today, there's nothing that can be done. It's not. It's not a crim. It's not a crime anymore. Statute of limitations means they they don't get charged for it. They're not going to go to jail. They're not going to go to court. There's no record. 
So why 50, though? Why do you think, what, it is, what is it about 50 years old that makes somebody start? You know, I think a lot of people around 50 are reconsidering their lives. Mm. It's sort of the midlife crisis time. What have I done with myself? What do I wish I had done? People sort of take stock of what has gone on with them and want to make a pivot if they need to. Mm. They make that, most people make that pivot there. I made that pivot reading Macbeth. Right. Mm. Like I was just lucky enough that that clicked for me of, oh, this thing is catching up with me. I thought I could outrun it and I couldn't. A lot of people just don't get there till 50. They've raised their kids. They've worked in their career. They feel a little more secure in life. Okay, maybe I can start talking about this now. Which also means if you're if you're Relief Society president, if you're Elders Quorum president, and there's people in their 50s in your in your ward, mm. um, have your ears open because they might have some stuff to talk to you about. Wow. That's so interesting to me. It's like the what do you say you said they think they can outrun it? Yeah. I thought I could outrun it. Oh. Just pretend it didn't happen, just move on. But it it's decay like a tooth. Like you can pretend you don't have a decayed tooth, but if the whole center of your tooth is eaten out, Delay. that tooth is crushing, man. It's just a matter of time. And so right around that time, it's like, might as well. So, like, so um, when it comes to vac- background checks, it mm-hmm. almost sounds like, well, then, okay, well, then I guess, then what are we going to do? Background so, checks don't work, right? Yeah. So so here's, here's the complication with background checks. Occasionally, they catch somebody. Hmm. We've all heard of it, yeah. right? They occasionally they catch someone and he is unallowed to work with children. And that sticks in people's minds as hmm. see they work. Okay. We might have saved even one child and that's worth it. And there is part of me that's on board with that. I don't want to repeat offender anywhere near children, right? So very, very good on that. But it, now it causes a new problem. What's that? Parents number one, don't understand what a background check is. They don't understand what is being checked and why there's nothing there to find. And they're busy. Adults need shorthand ways to understand Mm. things. And to tell a parent he passed his background check, you are essentially telling that parent he's safe to be with your kids. But he might not be. Mm. Because maybe they checked his background and there's just nothing there. There's just no record there. Mm. Even though he's abused 20 kids before he got to you. So parents hear this guy's passed a background check and they automatically extend trust to that person. So if you're an abuser who no one has reported yet, you can pass a background check anywhere. Mm. And now you have a golden ticket to wave in front of every parent that says, I'm safe. This paper says so. So what do we do? (sighs) Well... The other idea that people say is, we've got to do mandated reporting. If we do mandated reporting, then more issues of abuse will be, then there will be more to check on backgrounds. That's right. Mandated reporting is kind of the current darling of here is the thing that's going to fix it. Um, And sometimes mandated reporting has been helpful. Yeah. And I'm so happy for that. Here's the problem. Um. In states that have instituted mandated reporting, so so when somebody's going to make a child abuse report, yeah. what they're doing is they're calling Child Protective Services. That's right. If they call, they can call 911, but 911's going to direct them to CPS because CPS is the arm of law enforcement that deals with this. Okay. So 
in whatever state, they have this level normally of abuse cases to deal with. Pretty steady. The state institutes mandated reporting. So everybody like me who has a professional license, everybody who is under this new mandated reporting law says, oh, I need to start reporting stuff. Mm. It's, I don't want to lose my license. I, yeah, I need to protect yeah. the children. Yeah. I got to do. So what happens is reports of abuse go radically up by tenfold. Mm-hmm. But if you look over time, the actual abuse that they find stays exactly the same. Really? So the worker, the CPS worker, how overburdened do you think they were to begin with? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they now have 10 times the cases to sort through to mm. actually find the one kid who actually needs their help immediately. So we've now made it harder on kids who, who need help to get help. Wow. So then what's the solution? Is the solution... You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, well, the only sensible way to think about it, if there's not a magic bullet that's going to fix this, you kind of got to think about it like Swiss cheese. Yeah. Right. There's a hole in every single piece. There's some big holes. <laughs> right. One of those pieces of Swiss cheese is your is your uh, background checks. It's more hole than it is cheese. Yeah. But put it against another piece and that oh. one's got a hole somewhere else and stack 10 pieces of Swiss cheese together and maybe you've got something that is going to be a little bit harder to get through. The fascinating part for me is that some of the practices that our church has been doing for forever actually end up being really, really protective for kids. They weren't developed to be that way. Mm. Uh, They're practices that we've done and no one thinks about them as child protection, but they are. I think that's how we end up with a number like 5% instead of 30% is that we have some practices that average members have no idea are protections, but they work. Give me an example. Um, having ward boundaries. Oh, oh really? Really? How, how excited is anyone about having ward boundaries? Literally no one ever gives a thought to that unless they're moving hmm. or the ward is being adjusted. Most people think of that as all this like is, is we're just being told where, what ward we're in, what ward to go to. Hmm. Here's what happens in other churches. If you're an abuser and you go to your neighborhood church. It's four blocks from your house. Um, but there's some smart people there, and they start catching on that you're a little bit sketchy. Mm. You look at the kids in a way that makes some people real uncomfortable, and you recognize this isn't a real good hunting ground for me mm. if I'm mm. an abuser. That guy can go to church anywhere he wants. Mm. He can go four blocks away and have an entirely fresh start. Mm. Probably 100 churches in his town. And there's people coming from all over the place. Yeah. He can drive two hours to go to church. If, if he runs out of all of them in his town, he can go to the next town. Mm. And there's no records that follow him. Mm. There's nothing. However, if he were in our church and he's living within a ward, ward boundaries, and you're expected to go to the ward in your boundaries, and the people in your ward are looking at you sketchy, he 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 does things that make us real uncomfortable with the kids. Um, everyone knows it. And you can't just go, if you want to go to another war consistently, you'd have to get permission and it's kind of cumbersome, right? And you would have to have a real reason. Yeah. And maybe he can make up a reason one time. Mm. Um, but can somebody like that do that for life? Probably not. Mm. You're expected to go to church with your neighbors and your neighbors know some things about you, mm. right? Um, and if you're sketchy, your neighbors know it. Mm. Your, your, your kids know it and their friends know it. 
Yeah, they do. Right? So ward boundaries is a big one that's kind of naturally there. I don't think that anybody was thinking like, let's catch this and the ward boundaries will do that. Yes. But the ward boundaries naturally do it. Yes. The the one that naturally follows here is we have a we have an entirely different system for people working with children than other churches do. Really? In most Protestant churches, at least, you could walk in the front door for the first time, express interest in joining the church, go through whatever process they have, express interest in helping with the kids, go through whatever trainings they have. You could go through your background check. You could go through anything. But within two months, maybe six weeks, you can be teaching Sunday school with a kid in your lap. Mm. Right. In our church mm. is different. If you show up and you walk through the doors on the first day, um, yeah. you got to wait. You might get called as librarian. <laughs> yes, yeah, just based on. Right. Well, that, but this is a question that I think comes yeah. up a lot is discernment. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't know if this is the best place to talk mm. about it and address it, because that is a question that people ask. They're like, well, yeah. How come that bishop didn't discern? Mm. They did call them to this position. Yeah. They did pass the background check. They did, but, but they checked all the boxes. Yeah. How come they didn't notice? The bishop would, the bishop himself was called. Yeah. Right? I think that's, I mean, and I know that we may not have like a perfect answer, but I'm saying, I think it's important to consider like, just to have a conversation about that. Like, mm-hmm. like how do we, how do we look at that? Yeah. So the person... <laughs> Brother, whoever has been called to teach the third graders, should the bishop have caught it? Yeah. Um, We're sort of asking him to now become this magic oracle that can see into people's souls. Yeah. And that's not going to be a real workable solution either. Um, There also is this idea that the perpetrator themselves gets to make some choices, right? When they're called... um, they haven't, presumably, like, let's pretend they haven't done anything yet. Yeah. They just yeah. wish that they could. And that person gets to make choices along the way about, are you going to abuse? Are you going to go down behaviors and thoughts and patterns that are going to lead you to act out? Yeah. Or aren't you? Um, and no one knows. That person has control over, they have agency over their own life. Yeah. And we can't sit back with anyone and say, hmm. this person has this temptation and I know exactly the ways in which they are going to give into it. Yeah. Right. Because you can't, you can't to, know to that. stop everything from happening. Every, and I know that's not going to be, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's a hard question. I know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you should yeah. have the answer. I'm just saying we do have to consider the fact that people do make choices mm-hmm. that uh, I had somebody, um, they submitted, I, I just asked the audience like, Hey, what are some questions that you really have? And they mm-hmm. were like, well, what do you do when somebody uses their agency yeah. to take away my agency? Mm-hmm. And I think that this fits in that realm, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, it's it's really tricky. Abuse is hideous. I'm not at all saying yeah. they should have the agency to be allowed to abuse. No, they're but not I am, saying that. I am saying they get to make choices and they could have chosen to not do that. I've had, I'm a therapist. I've had clients who come into my office and sit down and say, I'm having these thoughts about some child and I need help before I act out. Yeah. Right. There are people that do that. Wow. There are people that put themselves in situations Mm. away from children because they're Mm. trying to do the right thing. Right. Mm. I'm not saying that's all abusers. It's it's, frankly, it's not. Um, You can't see into someone's soul and know if that's their temptation. 
you can't know what they're going to do with that temptation. To ask the bishop to discern that perfectly is is nonsensical. Mm. It's very cynical, actually, I think, to be able to say, well, if if this is Jesus Christ's church, he should have revealed that to that bishop. Like, that's not how agency works at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so people get into these positions. They can have a place where it's, it's, it's divided, you know, the different, um, you know, the award basically is kind of like his own, right? Mm-hmm. They can't just skip around and without people knowing it. Yeah. They are in these callings. They do, they can't just walk up and just ask for a calling. Yeah. Is there anything else um, that you've noticed in your research? Another factor that we have, and this one really only applies to girls, but girls are actually abused more than boys are. So it applies where it applies. In a lot of churches, the teenage girls are overseen by grown men. Mm. They're the pastors over them. There, there likely are women around who are helping. The women are probably not given any kind of authority over what happens with these girls. The men are in charge. Mm. In our church, um, yes, a girl might be taught in Sunday school by a man. She might have a male seminary teacher or something like that. But she also has a young woman's presidency that is charged with her spiritual care mm. of paying attention to what's going on with her in a way that gives them a place in her life that allows for some of this stuff. Um, if a young woman's president found out some girl in in her care is being hurt or is in danger in some way, I think 99% of the time she knows exactly what to do. Mm. Um, whereas sometimes when it's in other churches, the people that you report to have reasons why they don't want to take it seriously or they have reasons why... Oh, you misunderstood. You misunderstood, and it, they sort of mm. defend the other men, maybe. But to have mm. a woman's perspective in there and be like, "I see what I see, and it's a problem." Like, I think every young woman's president in existence would fight on that, mm. right? Um, so that's a protect. It's not. It doesn't work with boys. When boys are abused, they generally not abused by women. They're abused by men. There are women abusers. It's very rare. There's not very many of them. Um, m- m- the majority of abuse is men abusing teenage girls. Yeah. And even if it is women that are in charge, that there is a possibility. There is. There it's still low. is. They, they still need to have two leaders. And, you yeah. know, there's all those, there's those things that are in, in, in engaged too. Yeah. So another one kind, kind of going off of that is in our church, if you pay attention on a Sunday, you hear what everyone's calling is. Yeah. If someone's always called to work with the sunbeams, that we sustain them in church. Now, no one thinks of that as a, child protective practice. But but here's how it actually works. In other churches, you sign up to help with the third graders. You just do it. Literally no one knows that's not announced anywhere. Mm. That's not sustained anywhere. Mm. Um, mm. In fact, unless you're a parent who's got a kid in that class, you don't, you wouldn't know. And even then, you might not know. Mm. Um, so the fact that Yes, we sustain people in church. Now, I get that it would be very, very difficult if someone is up for a sustaining of working with child with children and you are sitting there and have some information about them of like, wait a minute, I know some stuff about this guy and yeah. he should not be with these kids. Maybe it's a little hard to raise your hand in an objection in the middle of your ward. Um, but that person would know how to find their bishop and go have that conversation. Yeah. Like, and- I think it's a good, a good reminder for all of us. It's yeah. like, it's the social aspect that I think makes this yeah. tricky. It's the, it's the social, like, oh, it's like, uh, I know, I, I, 
I studied psychology, right, in my mm-hmm. undergrad. It's yeah. like social loafing, right? Or yeah. like it's the idea of like, you know, the more people that there are, the more people that we the more likely we think somebody else is gonna do something about yep. it. Yep. And, and I think we have to take responsibility when we know something. We need to say something. Yeah. And my sense is that most adults in our church are eager yeah. to help with this problem and would do so. There's another one that's it's not quite as structural, but it but it still works, which is the high value that we put in our church on families. Yeah. Children are not equally vulnerable to abuse across the board. Children who are in a family with their biological mom and dad have the least likely chance of being abused, not only by the people in their home, but by other people. There's a protective factor there. Mm. It's even true when the children live just with a dad. It disappears when the children live just with mom. Mm. But the idea that there's a father in this child's life has some kind of societal implication for people who are wanting to hurt children, and they pass. And find mm. another child who is more vulnerable, right? Mm. Who's more, who's needier, who who lacks some parental attention, right? Mm. And they go after those kids because those kids are are more malleable. That is not to say that parents never abuse their own children. They do, mm. right? Um, that's the least likely kind of abuse to happen. Kids who live in two parent families are less likely to be abused by family members and strangers alike. That's a protective factor. Mm. No one emphasizes family as much as we do. Wow. So, I mean, just the, the natural overall structure can be a protection. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, I, I don't know. Some of these, I'm, I'm just imagining, and, and this is how I always try to think of any of these circumstances. It's like, there's always exceptions. There's mm-hmm. always, there's somebody right now that's hearing this. They're like, well, check, 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 yep. check, 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 check. Yep. Someone and found their way through the Swiss cheese somebody, maze and somebody still Somebody found abused. their way through it and it happened. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious from, from you, and you can share as much as you'd like or not. Like, how, how have you, because you might be, if, if you were listening to this a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. you'd be like, well, it happened to me. Yeah. What would you say to that person? Yeah. Let me, let me take one yeah. tiny step back from that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the difficulties in child abuse is that adults think they know how kids report Mm. and they actually have no idea and miss it most of the time. Adults think that a child is going to come to them with a coherent story of Uncle John did this to me and they're going to they're going to blurt it out or maybe mom has to pull it out of them but that that child will be able to give them direct information and it it happens but that's not how it usually happens. How it usually happens is something is off. The kid says something weird. And the the parent who is wise or the adult who is wise has to ask some follow-up questions. What what do you mean Uncle John was in your bed? Doesn't Mm. he have his own bed? Right? Try and and pry some more information out of that because maybe it was nothing. Mm. Right? But it deserves some questions. When a kid makes a weird statement that just sounds off, mm. when the adult doesn't follow up and ask another question, they've missed the opportunity to catch abuse. And that's most of the time how it happens. Here's, here's where it gets even more difficult. My heart goes out to the bishops who meet with these teenagers and are talking about chastity issues, right? The majority of them are not being abused. If they have chastity issues to talk about, it's their their same age boyfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when abuse stuff comes up or if that teenager says something that's just off enough, the right thing to do in that moment is for that bishop to ask some follow-up questions. However, you can understand why they're scared to death Of course, to ask more questions. I'm a grown man in a room alone with a teenage girl, and now I'm asking her questions about sex. Yeah. And they're putting themselves on the line to be seen as a creep, mm. to be seen as inappropriate, mm. to be seen as somehow trying to get something out of this girl. Mm. And everybody has to do that calculation in their head. Getting kids to talk about childhood sexual abuse is risky for the adult sometimes because you might lead a kid down a path of of questions and the end of the path, it was nothing. There was nothing there. Mm. But now you could be just accused of being the weirdo who asks weird sex questions, mm. right? So there is a sense in which an adult has to, they kind of have to put some skin in the game. Mm. Like, okay, this kid might be in danger and I am going to put myself in harm's way to try to help them. Because adults want it to be really easy and direct. They want the children to send them a memo yeah, outlining everything happen. with it. It's, it's not going to happen. happen. You they are don't gonna know how to do yeah, it. Yeah. You're going to have to pull stuff out of them. And that's a risk. Mm. And so people miss disclosure opportunities because they want to protect themselves. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but adults are worried about the implications for them sometimes more than we're worried about the implications for children. Wow. Dang. And I think that that's really a good... That, that's something that we can actually do differently. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying now is it's more of skin in the game to me is like a vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, like it's like, like before where like somebody thinks they might know something about so-and-so and they don't mm-hmm. say anything that we actually say something Yeah. that if we, if we discern something, we actually call it out. Yeah. And um, maybe we could be looked at it a certain way, but that's better than, than um, something happening. Yeah. Better to have that risk than let that kid go on suffering. But what most adults do, and honestly, I understand why, is they say, this problem gets solved by policy. This problem gets Mm, solved. Assumptions. Yeah. This problem is going to get solved by background checks. Not this problem is going to get solved by me maybe following up on a real weird comment and risking that I'm going to be seen as asking a wrong question. Mm. That's how child abuse gets solved. Not worrying about how we seem to others versus mm-hmm. just if we're going to really prioritize kids, this is one of the very yeah. specific ways that we can. You could get judged real hard for yeah. asking questions that somebody thinks is creepy, especially if that line of questioning doesn't lead to any discovery of abuse. Yeah. Well, even in the asking of your child, mm-hmm. right? Like... Because I mean, think about it. There's family. There's families involved. There's mm-hmm. things that are. There's relationships that are family relationships. And you got to put that to the side. Yeah. And you have to really. I mean, what's the worst thing that'll happen? Like, so and so's doesn't like that you asked the question. Mm-hmm. But your kid's safe. Yeah. You know. And that is way harder than someone saying, "We should have more background checks." That's a really easy answer, but it doesn't help kids. Yeah. Any other things that you think? I just want to take us to more of a resolution of, mm-hmm. yeah. of anything else that we can do that can actually make a difference. I and mean, I know it's not just one mm-hmm. silver bullet. Yeah. So so two more thoughts. One directly on this. Um, 
We talked a little earlier about how victims will often say something and take it back. Yeah. I was just kidding. Right? That, oh, I, I was just pulling your leg. Like, like whatever. If that happens, especially older children and teenagers do that a lot. They say it and they take it back. Or they say it, oh, I got it wrong. It really, I misunderstood. It was really this. Don't worry. If a kid does that, you should file that away in your brain. Right? Kid is not right. Re- the kid is telling you, I'm closing down right now. I'm yeah, not ready yeah. to talk. Yeah, yeah. But the wise adult should file that away and listen to this kid a little more carefully. What's being said that's weird. What's not being said sometimes reveals things. Um, mm. Start to have an eye on that kid that's d- and see if they'll say something else at some point. Mm. Um, when a kid shut da- shuts down or a teenager shuts down, I don't think there's anybody that has skills to pull that out of them <laughs> if they don't want to talk. Once they shut it down, you, that's right? it. That's it. So, so the smart adult who cares about this kid kind of has to make a little commitment in their mind of, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do some careful watching. Mm. And that can be how you, how you catch abuse. The person that I initially disclosed my abuse to, that's what was happening there. He recognizes there's something off with this girl. Mm. I thought I was fooling everyone. I thought I was moving on with my life and it was great. Mm. Right. And he looks at me and because he's an adult and adults can see things kids can't and went, something ain't right. Something's going on here. Yeah. So that's absolutely another way. Like parents can't help. Um, Believing kids when they say something gets really hard when kids take it back. Yeah. And you need to understand what that is, that that's the kid getting afraid. Um, sometimes victims have been called liars a lot. That's not lying. They're not lying. They're scared and mm. they don't know what to do. And so they're just trying to self-protect. That's not something that should be seen as a punishment. Mm. They're, that's not them having bad character. That's not sin. That's terror in them. Mm. Of I thought it would be okay to say this and now I realize it's not and I have to take it back. And the adult needs to not overreact to, you shouldn't tell stories. You shouldn't make stuff up, mm. right? Like, don't do that to kids. Something's going on with that kid. Mm. Um, the other part I'd love to address is maybe the person who has been abused or maybe they haven't, but they read stories like have been in the news this week about abuse in our church or or abuse in other churches. And it breaks their hearts because like we love our church, right? Yeah. And, and I think a fair number of those people have had to take a beat and say, wait a minute, like, is my church the bad guy? Yeah. Are, are we, like, do we have all these sophisticated mechanisms for hiding abuse like we're being accused of? Yeah. Um. To let that slip into some doubting of the church, doubting of their faith, ultimately doubting of God. I mean, you can kind of see how that yeah, happens, right? That's right. Um, and the people in our church are bright and, and care about issues and care about kids so you hear this shocking news story, of yeah. course you're going to have some emotional reactions. Here's, here's how I address that as a victim of sexual abuse. Mm. So what happened to me was terrible. It should have never happened. It was awful. It ruined my life in some ways. Mm. But if someone heard my story and said, that's the proof God doesn't exist. I'm giving up my faith. Mm. That would be a second and such so unnecessary tragedy. This this pastor who did this to me, like, 
I, I am the victim of that. You, person who reads about terrible abuse cases, don't volunteer yourself as victim mm. because of their evil. Don't lose your faith that has been so important to you, that is meaningful to you, because some evil guy did something. He's already, he already has one victim. Yeah. Don't make it two. Right? He's not going to sexually abuse you, but he could steal your faith. And you could let him just because you are so mad about the issue of abuse. Everybody's mad at the issue of abuse. It is hard. I get it to read these stories and to try and be like, okay, God is still in control. The church is still good. We still actually do care about kids. We're not this awful secret organization that hides abusers as we, yeah. has been accused in the media. Um don't let the abusers win. They do not get to win. They don't get to steal your faith. Don't let them. Well, what about you? For you personally, and, and like, how has, how, assuming that it's come, or assuming that it's in the process, how has redemption come for you mm. personally? Yeah. Um, I mean, because my experience of telling my story in public intersects so strongly with me joining the church, like, you can't tell one story without telling the other in some yeah. ways. Um, it feels like that is such a spot of redemption of not only mm. did I get um, some of this stuff out of me in a good way, but I found a church where I don't have to think some real terrible things that are also just as awful. Like, for example, my dad died when I was 12. The church that I attended like many Protestant churches, has the belief that if you did not say a certain prayer, have a certain kind of commitment to Christ, you are sent to hell for eternity where you will suffer conscious torment forever, and there is nothing mm -hmm. that can ever happen to change that. There's no possibility after you are dead, you are suffering in hell. And that's what they would say about my dad, mm. right? Accepting that as a reality, the emotional weight of that feels as heavy to me personally, as somebody who's experienced it, as having gone through abuse, mm. right? So to figure out there was a system where I didn't have to think things like that, mm. like that made it so that my mind could kind of find healing along, like with my spirit finding healing. There also is an element, it was very redemptive for me to be able to stand in front of court, say, this is what happened, Every adult there was taking it seriously. Not, there was no like, oh, don't ruin his life, honey. Mm. Leave him alone, right? Like having it taken seriously was really, really healing for me. Adults listening, if you know a person in your life who's either an adult um, or a child who's already, they've already confessed their abuse. It's already been dealt with. Supporting them in a way that takes their story seriously. That's one of the most healing things that there is. Wow. What do you believe now about, about God, this changed. Oh, goodness. this changed your perspective. Um, in in the churches I was in, and in a lot of the Protestant world, God's kind of mean. He He sends people who who were born in times and places that they had no opportunity to ever hear about Him. Literally zero opportunity. He sends them to be tortured in hell for all of eternity. Um. In the, in the churches I was in, you are a child of God, but not really. 
Satan mm. is really actually your father, and God mm. will kindly adopt you into his family, but you're evil and wretched from birth. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of changes in our church compared to, to my previous churches about the character of God, mm. the trustworthiness of God. Can you trust a God who sends people to hell for no reason? Mm. That's hard to trust, <laughs> right? And then you experience abuse in a church. Like, I was hanging on, but not always great. Um sort of reconceptualize the character of God, um, that has been incredibly healing for me. Tell me about what you believe about him, his character. Um, I am his child, his literal child. I I have spent most of my life without a father. And my mm. dad died way too young. I only knew him as a kid. I was more vulnerable to abuse because of that. My abuse didn't happen until after he died. Um, mm. I spent most of my life feeling like and just the little fatherless girl, right? Out of luck. Yeah, God's my father, but only sort of, mm. right? He actually thinks I'm evil and wicked. He's just real kind and lets me in, sort of. Mm. Um, so to feel like I actually have a heavenly father and a bonus, a heavenly mother that no one else talks about either. Yeah. I have parents in heaven who care about me, who know me, who are aware of my situation, that, that, that's a phrase Latter-day Saints say, like, he is aware of you. Yeah. No one else uses that phrase, really, at least not that I know of. Mm. Um, and the first time someone said that to me, it was like a lightning bolt of truth of like, oh, mm. like he actually is aware of me. And you, you just don't get that in the same way other places. Well, um, we've gone over a lot of things. Your yeah. story is really, really powerful. I'm so thankful that you're, that you're able to, to be willing to come and share. Yeah, thank it's you for not, having me. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing to talk about. And again, we know that this is a very sensitive topic, mm -hmm. but the biggest thing is don't take our word for it. Yep. Find out for yourself. Yep. Till next time. <laughs>